Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. And welcome once more to Have We Got Planning News For You. Thank you very much indeed for joining us again this week. Um, can I start with the usual reminder um, to you to consider making a charity donation in lieu of a registration fee? Uh, as you know by now, the charities we support include the NHS Combined Charities Just Giving page and Shelter. But please, of course, feel free to donate to a charity of your choice if you prefer. And welcome also to our YouTube viewers in the future. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel to get all our updates at the earliest opportunity. Now, on to this week's uh, business, and our very special guest indeed this week is the amazing Priya Shah, founder of Bain in Property, an organisation for Bain and non-Bain professionals who are passionate, as we all are, about increasing ethnic diversity in the property and planning sectors. And Priya is also a consultant at Grayling, specialising in stakeholder engagement and community consultation in the built environment. I don't know how you find the time to do everything, <laughs> Priya. Um, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I know how I find the time to do everything either, but thank you. You're making me blush. That's <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, well good afternoon. <laughs> um, tell us um, where you're calling from and what theme have you chosen this week and, and uh, what, if anything, are you drinking? Well, I mean, I would rather be calling from from a safari, which is obviously this, this week's theme. Um, I'm not sure if you can see it, but I am sporting the... Uh, the leopard print and I've got a number of friends with me um kind of joining joining today so I've got Simba ah. I've got Mabine <laughs> got Jeffrey the giraffe and I've got Evie the elephant so I'm really really <laughs> pleased to be coming with all of my safari today I can't be in the Serengeti this evening but I will be joining all of you wonderful people today so um I'd, I'd love to see what what the rest of the team has got with um with their safari theme so give me what you got Fantastic. Well, I, mean, I know in particular Paul is, is the world's biggest safari official uh, <laughs> of We can't wait. The, the smile on Paul's face yesterday when you say it was safari was from screen to screen. Um, uh, well, um, well, why don't we do the introduction of the team first, then we'll talk about what we're going on, because I think Paul can't wait. Go, go on, Paul. You, you literally can't resist. We'll call you on first. <laughs> it's about to burst. <laughs> Uh, I'm an absolute huge fan of safaris. I've got a whole array that have joined R2 and, and friends here. I've got rhinoceroses. I've got this magnificent thing, which my uh, then 13-year-old went onto the beach uh, at Mombasa uh, with a fiver in his pocket and I said, get what you can. You know, go and negotiate to try and teach him some life skills. This is the heaviest thing I've ever owned. It's unbelievable. But all the way from Africa, from a great safari. I'm pretty excited to see you. <laughs> Mary, back to my usual order. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm currently in Birmingham. And as you can see, I'm in the offices of RPS. I've been doing an examination up here for a couple of days. And I want to say, first of all, <laughs> I'm, I'm eating care of the lovely Jacob Bonehill. Very good. Lion bars. And the lovely Paul Hill has 
on the basis that this started off as travels and then became safaris, I last went on a lovely safari to see elephants in the various national parks in Sri Lanka. And so I'm just pointing out on Paul's Hill, Paul Hill's globe, Sri Lanka. Lovely. Um, Chris. Hello, Charlie. Uh, I'm in an EIP and uh, doing it remotely from the offices of a well-known house builder, but I obviously won't say uh, who, who that is uh, in any way. Uh, but um, uh, to be honest, it's been a difficult week. I've got a nightmare opponent from one of the other house builders. So I won't tell you who that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mary. Lou. <laughs> Hard work, I tell you. Hard work. She's making really good points. But... Um, so yeah, that's where I am. We've been in our EIP for a couple of days talking about viability. And um, for the theme, I too have been to Africa. I've been to uh, Kruger National Park where this is our family friend. This is Lep and obviously he's a leopard. And uh, what's that Lep? What, what is Priya wearing around her neck? No, no, okay, right, thanks, Lev. Uh, so, um, and I'm drinking water because uh, I've got to drive home at the M5. Fantastic, and Sasha? I'm in London, and I'm a little bit of Scotland's with me because I see Paul and I were both celebrating a very famous victory last Thursday night, which I foreshadowed, and I've got <laughs> in celebration some, some tunnocks. I'm going to work my way through in anticipation of going to the European finals next summer. Um, I've also got an elephant and I'm the proud, proud. I bought this in South Africa after going on safari some years ago. And I also named my cricket team called the elephants after my wife said, well, you're all grey, old and wrinkly. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Well, uh, Charlie Banner here um, from Keating Chambers. I'm still in Sweden, um, fresh from a weekend trip to the Arctic, where, oh. I must say, on last week's, he was very impressed by the design quality of the prefab homes. There are lots to be learned from there. Uh, since then, I've uh, been a great week. I've had a Zoom call with John Bon Jovi. True, I kid you not. Uh, Winter <laughs> Maidenhead local plan. Um, and uh, today I've been uh, doing my side hustle as a judge in Kazakhstan for half the day. So it's been quite varied. Um, I'll tell you what, though, um, there are fewer harder things than to find anything safari related in Scandinavia. That is what we found. It has been a very, very difficult. So I'm afraid to say for you, I've gone for Scandinavian safari. Um, I've got my lovely daughter, uh, a, a elk, I think, oh. or a reindeer. Um, and I do like going on whale watching safaris, as I think you do, probably. We've had that chat. So I found a beer called The Tale of a Whale. And if I finish that, um, elk beer it looks disgusting uh, in the final traditions of of this show it probably will be disgusting so uh, i'm on a swedish safari pre i'm afraid i would if i've been back i'm a massive fan of um, of uh, safari generally but unfortunately there's literally nothing i've drawn a complete blank here in sweden i love um, that i don't think we ever specified if it was never specified. Or asian no. or european safari so you know what we've got diversity haven't we You've, you've got diversity. You've all done really well, um, and I'm and I'm really impressed. Uh, really impressed with the uh, plush toys. I thought I was the only proud owner of several. I've only bought out half of my collection because you know, <laughs> anyone thinks I'm too weird. But nice to see we've got the big five sporting um, this evening. Absolutely, uh, great. Well, thank you. Great idea. Really great idea. Now, um, as as regular viewers know, we'll, we'll be doing our discussion, uh, in depth discussion with Priya in the second half of the show, as always on the hugely important topic of increasing ethnic diversity in planning and property. 
Um, Priya, please do um, feel free to make any contribution you wish. No obligation to in the first half of the show while we talk through some of the, the updates. Uh, and viewers, of course, please do feel free to post any questions you may have for Priya in the Q&A, as well as the usual banter. Now, um, it's been a busy week in the world of planning. Um, I reckon it's probably our most heavyweight weekly diet of new case decisions since we started this whole ruse back in uh, back in March and April. Um, so we've got a lot to work through. And um, uh, first up, Stonehenge, um, mm -hmm. the DCO for the new tunnel, etc. Uh, Mary, you're going to tell us about that. Yes, thank you very much. So this is a November 2020 decision by Grant Schlapps, the Secretary of State for Transport, following a six month examination period uh, it was a blended event, which is quite interesting, mixture of written and oral submissions and a series of hearings were held. And as Charlie said, it's all about Stonehenge. This involves eight miles uh, of new road and junctions, a two mile tunnel, and it was the tunnel that was, of course, uh, in particular, very controversial. A new junction at the Countess Roundabout. Some of us who've been stuck on in traffic jams will be familiar with that. Uh, and another, uh, another new roundabout, there were 21 main issues uh, and five examining inspectors looked at those uh, issues. And interestingly, those examining inspectors concluded that consent for the DCO should be withheld. The Secretary of State, and this is a, a bit of a running theme at the moment, disagreed and decided to uh, uh, allow the DCO and to give his consent. So of those issues, I can't do justice in the short time to all 21 uh, of those issues. So I'm gonna focus on uh, the main ones. Wiltshire Council and Devon County Council supported uh, the DCO. And I'm, perhaps I should have uh, started by pointing out that this was Highways England's DCO. So the local council supported it because of the economic benefits to which the Secretary of State ascribed moderate weight. There were uh, recognized improvements for the local people and communities and broader benefits in terms of reducing the severance that the 303 created. Uh, so that was a positive for locals and communities and also visitors to the World Heritage Center. There was a huge new semi-natural habitat, 186 hectares of new semi-natural habitat 162 of which was calcareous grassland. That was a significant benefit for biodiversity. There was a clear need for the uh, development and that weighed very significantly in its favor. The adverse impacts, uh, loss of agricultural land, but that was only given limited weight, even though it was BMV. The real crucial point was the cultural heritage and historic environmental issues. Crucial was whether or not uh, the impact was substantial or less than substantial harm, in particular to the outstanding universal value attributed to world heritage sites. Now, the DCO was focusing not on the MPPF, but on the national policy statement uh, for national networks. And, but, but broadly speaking, the test was similar. Um, whether it was substantial or less than substantial harm, uh, either way that that harm would have been, had to have been given very great weight. Now the examining inspectors concluded that there would be substantial harm. And that was really the foundation for their recommendation that consent for the DCO should be withheld. However, the secretary of state noted 
that neither the applicant nor Wiltshire Council nor the National Trust nor uh, English, the, the English Heritage Trust uh, nor DCMS and critically Historic England supported that finding. All of those organisations were of the view that the proposals would cause less than substantial harm and the Secretary of State in the end came down on the side of those organisations and particular weight was attached to the views of Historic England being the statutory consultee. And obviously a DCO is also a compulsory purchase order and it's interesting to note that this particular DCO included both National Trust land and also the Crown land. You cannot uh, CPO Crown land without their consent. So critical to the success of this was for the highways was for highways england to get historic england behind them and also to get the consent of the national trust and the crown to the compulsory acquisition of their land that really was i think a um the clincher for the secretary of state the other quite unusual and interesting point is that there was an allegation that the development would result in a breach of the united nations scientific and cultural organization convention which was concerned with the protection of the World Heritage Site. And again, the Secretary of State took the view that a finding of harm, whether substantial or less than substantial, would not inevitably mean that there would be a breach of that convention. So that's another uh, interesting factor, and you don't come across that very often. So all in all, what do you learn from that? Get your statutory consultees on board, is what I would say you learn from that. Thanks, Mary. Fascinating. Uh, I've read some something somewhere saying that might be challenged. I think someone said they're looking. Yes. Yes. So, yes. Yes. Love the yeah. background, Paul. I was going to say something unkind about comparing you to Stonehenge, but I'll, I'll refrain. <laughs> um, now, uh, Chris, you're going to tell us about a challenge to um, a, a multifaceted challenge to a McCarthy Stone Air Home uh, Commission. I am, and I've got deja vu again this week. So Sasha's distributed the cases, and I've got a judgment of um, James Strawn sitting as a High Court judge, which is even longer than last week. It's 58 pages. Sasha, you know I'm sat in an EIP here with Mary all week, and when am I going to find the time to read all that? I mean, that is basically a short novel, uh, and... Um, don't, don't set me a challenge, Chris. Just yeah, well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, you'll rise to that, I'm sure. 189 paragraphs, and I have enjoyed every one of them because they are about the fascinating topic of highway traffic junction models. And, and few things could get more interesting than that, could they, really? Um, so, uh, we, yeah, it, it's been a long day. We've had vibe, but it, Mary and I have been joined by Graham Keane, who's always charming and great fun. And Nigel Jones has been one of my viability experts i've got lots of surveyors on my side and um a friend of the show but then i thought no at lunchtime i'll sit down and read this uh, this long judgment in a nutshell because i know charlie you've uh, you've not been at an inquiry eip so you've been reading your case all day and what uh, what was it 25 minutes for yours okay this is an unsuccessful challenge by uh, hawkehurst parish council against the decision of tunbridge wells it echoes entirely what Mary said, which is get the statutory consultee on your side. Not a statutory consultee, this one, but the highway authority, who obviously are going to be consulted on any application that involves traffic. It's a proposal for uh, McCarthy and Stone 
um, development, which uh, Paul's Chambers does uh, lots of that. On this occasion, it was uh, the fabulous Giles Cannock that was defending, and uh, Megan Thomas was defending for Tunbridge Wells Borough Council. In a nutshell, the issue is about um, how should local authorities approach the severe impact test in paragraph 109 of the MPPF when you're only dealing with a small development with a limited amount of traffic. Now, this is, this is a really significant issue that a lot of highway consultants have to grapple with when they're dealing with small developments, yet the junction that they're closest to or the junctions they're close to are actually at capacity already because some inspectors have taken the view that additional traffic would make it severe. And that was the view of Stuart Nixon uh, in a decision back in 2014, I think it was, up at Preston. Uh, but he said it was severe because the junction was over capacity and gave rise to um, illegal U-turns um, and uh, a lot of traffic where there was a hospital nearby and the, the ambulances needed to get by. Here, the County Council came to a different view. They said, although the junction was at capacity, with the mitigation, which was basically just a traffic contribution, they couldn't enlarge the junction, uh, a contribution towards, sorry, public transport, um, that the proposal was not objectionable. Now, what makes this case interesting is that Kent County Councils sort of set themselves up for this challenge to an extent, because what they did was they produced a document back in 2017, um, which was sent round to all the members of all the councils in Kent. Um, and uh, they had looked at um, this particular junction at Hawks, uh, Hawksmere and concluded that any more vehicles would cause a severe impact. So they'd said that publicly, and obviously the claimants having read that thought, well, how can they say anything different? But in a very, very long judgment, and it is long, uh, very long. James Strawn deals with each of the, again, about 30 points that are raised, uh, and he does so brilliantly. My favourite, because that's all we've got time for, Chris's favourite, is an argument that says, well, actually, um, what difference does it make? Because e even if uh, you had looked at the cumulative impact, because the test, as we know, in 109, development should only be prevented or refused on highway grounds, if there would be an unreasonable impact on highway safety or the residual cumulative impacts on the road network were severe. So it's the residual cumulative impacts. You've got to look at cumulative development potentially. Um, but he said, well, what would have happened if you had, if you'd added in additional cumulative developments, committed developments, potential allocations, all you have done is had more traffic on the road uh, at this junction and the effect of the new development would have been an even smaller percentage because you'd have more traffic and the effect of it would um, in effect pro rata less. So he says it doesn't actually make any difference. There's interesting comments about the difference between a transport assessment, which a nearby development, a golf course had had to do, and a transport statement, which he describes as a lighter touch and therefore doesn't need to go into the same level of detail. What I would say most of all about this case, if you've got the time, uh, or you're going on a long flight to Sweden, maybe, is, um, is there's a lot of really practical advice for highway officers and planning officers and highway consultants and planning consultants to deal with this problem of junctions at capacity and demonstrating that it's not a severe impact. And um, I'm going to go and have a lie down. 
transport planners around the world will be thrilled at how much you love uh, all that modelling, Chris. Um, it's, a great, it's a great topic, let me tell you, transport. And great fun to cross-examine on, actually, because um, you can actually achieve some results. Um, um, now, Sasha, I must be said, someone's common comment, until your badge uh, became visible in Scream, it looked like you were dressing up as a vicar <laughs> with your dog collar, <laughs> which is an aperceptive comment. You're going to deal with the, the Seven Oaks duty to cooperate uh, challenge. And lots of people commenting, saying, you know, what do we think about the implications of that judgment for, um, uh, for strategic planning generally, which I'm sure you'll be covering and we've all thought about. So over to you. Yes, I'm going to talk about a judgment of the High Court from last Friday, Mr Justice Dove. And this is in the context of Seven Oaks's challenge under 113 to the inspector's report, the inspector Karen Baker's report, when effectively she found in quite clear terms that Seven Oaks hadn't effectively cooperated with its neighbours, principally Tunbridge and Morling and, and the before mentioned Tunbridge Wells. And they re she reached that view and basically told them that they didn't, hadn't effectively satisfied it. And Seven Oaks took the decision, which uh, I'll, I'll make some comment at the end, but they took the decision to challenge that in the High Court on the basis that the inspector effectively hadn't applied a margin of appreciation. She'd failed to interpret the duty to cooperate rightly. She'd failed to consider evidence and her reasons were inadequate. So pretty comprehensive criticism by Seven Oaks District Council of what the inspector had done. Now, Mr Justice Dove was was in the, in the counterway pretty strong in finding against Seven Oaks and his conclusions are pretty clear when he says in my view her reasons were clear full detailed and justified in my judgments there's no substance whatsoever in the contentions and for what the reasons I've already given the inspector's conclusions were clearly open to her and based upon a proper appreciation and application of the relevant statutory tests so I think the takeaways that I'm going to emphasize is first of all you know, it's not, councils have to take the duty to cooperate seriously and just saying or going through the motions, particularly at certain stages in the process are not good enough. We must remember what the actual law talks about to engage constructively, actively and on an ongoing basis in any process. And clearly the inspector was very strongly of the view that they hadn't done that. Uh, it's also interesting because Seven Oaks did two things which is slightly interesting and worth comment first of all they sought to get a statement of common grounds with the other authorities saying everything's hunky-dory and we've all been good and tried to do this and the other thing they did they got intelligent plans to do an audit of whether they'd done the appropriate thing prior to the eip and they said that they had behaved appropriately and complied with the duty so i think mr justice dove is quite clear that this this action doesn't have any grounds and I think it does stress to those of the, our audience who are involved in plan preparation that you need to take very seriously the requirements in law otherwise um, inspectors are going to find against you and I commend Inspector Karen Baker because we know what happens to inspectors in the IP and that it, we must mention Tunbridge and Morling the neighbouring authority again the inspectors have raised the flag on their concerns about failure to duty to cooperate and we've seen throughout the past seven months when that happens the councils come in with very strong rebuttals that they have behaved so I do commend Inspector Baker for sticking to her guns and coming to the conclusion that she has, because at the end of the day, we're talking about a very significant unmet need for housing yeah. which is not taken account of in the local plan. And I, I, 
I agree, Sasha, completely. I mean, the issue keeps and keeps keeps on being raised. I mean, in a couple of weeks' time, the Brentwood EIP, which I'm involved in in front of the parties, that the same issue is arisen again. Thurrock are saying the duty to cooperate hasn't been complied with, as do my clients, and there's going to be a four days of, of debate about that. Uh, I mean, the, in terms of the consequences, I mean, the reality is for those authorities found not to have complied with the duty, they might be thinking, well, is it best just to bide our time and see what the outcome of the white paper consultation is? Um, it, it may not be particularly appealing to a local authority to start promoting a, a new local plan or re-promoting a recycled old one um, at this stage when there's so much uncertainty. Charlie, I think that's inevitable. We're already seeing evidence of that. Bromsgrove, South Worcestershire, Warrington, Winchester. You're not going to introduce a new system and introduce a complete overhaul and not see some local authorities think that's an opportunity to down tools. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Now, uh, we must crack on. And the, uh, the final case before we get to our discussion with Priya is um, Rights Community Action and, and the Secretary of State, which I'm going to cover. This, uh, as I think pretty much everybody listening will appreciate, was the Judicial Review Challenge to the three statutory instruments, secondary legislation, made on the 20th of July this year, which brought into effect the high-profile changes to the GPDO and uh, Use Classes Order with effect from the 31st of August. There's a reason why I'm giving the dates. I'll come on to that. Um, the, uh, the new PD rights included... Uh, specific upwards extensions of certain resi and, and commercial buildings subject to prior approval, demolition of flats and commercial buildings and rebuilding for resi, again, subject to prior approval. As we all know, the, the end of use classes order involved the amalgamation of various previous classes into the new mega class E. Um, the procedural background is important to understanding what the court did and didn't decide, particularly there's been a little bit of misreporting about the case. Um, normally, a judicial review claim, for those who aren't lawyers, requires permission to proceed to a full hearing, and permission is only granted if the claim is arguable. And in this case, so as to deal efficiently with a case of considerable public importance, and to avoid a separate injunction hearing that the claimants originally sought, um, the court suggested, and the parties agreed, to proceed to what lawyers know as a rolled-up hearing, which is that rather than having two separate stages of whether permission should be granted and then a full hearing, you wrap them all up in a single hearing to deal with both stages, and it's quicker and a bit more streamlined. An exceptional procedure, but one which happened here. And that rolled-up hearing happened on the 14th and 15th of October, just eight weeks since the claim was first brought on the 27th of August, and the court's 141-paragraph uh, judgment. You can claim, Chris, is what I had to read. <laughs> um, lightweight. Absolutely lightweight, that one. <laughs> that was turned around with remarkable speed and delivered um, a month after the, the trial on the 17th November. The claim failed in its entirety. The court, um, Lord Justice Lewis and Mr Justice Holgate, considered that two of the grounds of claim were arguable. And so for those two, it granted permission to proceed, but dismissed the, the claim. And for the others, it, it held that uh, the arguments weren't even arguable and, and refused permission. Now, of the two grounds found arguable, the first alleged that the changes to the GPDO and the UCO require strategic environmental assessment. Uh, that's the environmental assessment of plans normally associated with development plans, but sometimes with other kinds of uh, plan documents. Now, under the relevant domestic and EU legislation, SEA is required only in relation to plans or programmes, which amongst other things, set the framework for future development consents of projects, set the framework, that's the key um, test. And the court held this criterion was met. Um, in relation to the use classes order, the court, um, I think, to be honest, rightly, gave the claimant's arguments extremely short shrift in a single paragraph. 
Um, the use classes order, they said, defines what is and isn't development requiring planning permission. It doesn't in any way set any kind of framework for the future grant of planning permission. It holds the planning permission isn't needed for the things in question. So that didn't set the framework for future development consent. In relation to new PD rights, the court noted that those rights, either on their own or taken together with the required um, prior approval, they are the planning permission. They don't set the framework for any future grant of planning permission. They are the permission. Uh, and therefore the use the PD uh, changes uh, were not framework setting plans. Um, I think those findings shouldn't come as a surprise to, to those with an understanding of how SEA operates. Um, I suggest they're an orthodox application of the principle set out by the Supreme Court in the HS2 case about six years ago. Um, the second ground found to be argued was a alleged breach of a legitimate expectation arising out of a promise before the COVID pandemic that there'd be a consultation before PD lights rating to demolish and rebuild were introduced. And on that point, the court uh, noted the party's agreement that a promise of this nature could in principle be departed from if there were good and proportionate reasons to do so. Um, and in that context, the judges were persuaded by a witness statement from a friend of this show, none other than Simon Gallagher, a director of planning who we've twice had on as a guest in the show. And he evidenced um, that the effects of the pandemic on the construction development sectors and the need for stimulus were good and uh, proportionate reasons, so the court thought, and therefore the government uh, was lawfully entitled to depart from the pre-pandemic promise of consultation. Now, contrary to some reports on LinkedIn uh, and elsewhere on the internet, uh, the court didn't grant uh, and hasn't granted permission to appeal. Its comments that two grounds were arguable was in the context of it granting those grounds permission uh, for full judicial review consideration, but it went on to dismiss those grounds and whether the, an appeal has a realistic prospect of success is a different question, which the judgment wasn't concerned with. And that's uh, an important point to bear in mind, um, which is why I described the procedure at the outset. Stepping back, uh, um, this case I suggest is an illustration of how effective the planning court continues to be at dealing swiftly and efficiently with important cases. And um, credit must go uh, to Mr. Justice Holgate, the lead judge of the court, who's done a truly brilliant job at keeping the court going during the pandemic, leading from the front with a succession of broader force judgments in a number of important cases, going into court and doing in-person hearings, despite the fact that like most judges, he's over 60 and therefore you know, in a slightly more um, vulnerable category by virtue of that. So hats off to him. And I think the, the success of the pandemic court um, this year and in particular, the uh, swift turning around of cases like this and, and the robust treatment of, of unfounded claims is a powerful answer to the uh, current independent review of judicial review that the government has initiated, um, probably out of sour grapes having lost the corrugation judicial review. Um, I hope the Court of Appeal deal with any application permission to appeal as quickly as the Planning Court has, has dealt with. I would just add the bottleneck does actually appear to be there at the moment. Um, I'm still waiting on, uh, on behalf of the government on a bit of the permission to appeal application by the claimants in the Stansted Judicial Review, which Mr. Justice Dove decided back in February, and, and the case called Monk Hill on the frame, uh, the paragraph left in the framework, which Mr. Justice Holgate decided in summer last year, was only heard a fortnight ago. That's not necessarily a criticism of the Court of Appeal, who are overworked and under-resourced, but it does just highlight how well the planning court's doing, uh, despite similar challenges. So that's the PD Rights Challenge. That's our update. Uh, and now for our discussion. And Paul, you're going to lead this. So I'll pass over to you to introduce Priya and, and start our discussion. Yeah, can I just tell our audience that Charlie is going to have his own personal merch uh, page, which is going to have I Love David and little badges. <laughs> um, <laughs> territory. Um, Priya, thank you for sitting patiently and listening to four lawyers talking about the cases. Um, 
So can I just introduce for anybody who's, who's, who doesn't know your organisation, as I understand it, Bain Property was founded 2000, in 2017 after you'd been a few years uh, in, in the planning comms business uh, and that you were disappointed, as I think, frankly, we all are, to see how astonishingly pale and male our world is. Um, if a lack of gender diversity isn't bad enough, and goodness me, it really is bad enough, uh, astonishingly, 1.2% of the built environment sector is BAME, comprising, whereas BAME people tend to uh, comprise 14% of the, of the UK population. I mean, that falls into the category of shamefulness. So disarmingly, your organisation, I think, asks or rather poses questions to, to us all, such as, why is there a lack of ethnic diversity in our sector? What are the main prejudices faced by ethnic minorities in the planning and property sectors? And what can we do about it? Um, so thank you very much, Priya, for uh, uh, involving us in your astonishing uh, journey from the streets of Harrow uh, to the doors of Downing Street and that you've nipped in to see us and hopefully we can help in terms of raising awareness issues. So can you just explain what BAME in property is, why were you moved to found it, uh, and is it only open to members of the BAME community? Thank you, Paul, um, for that very kind um, introduction. Um, really, really pleased to be here with you all, so thank you for inviting me as your guest this evening. Um, so yeah, BAME property is nearly three years old. Um, it will be three next month, which is, which is quite exciting. It's finally a toddler. Um, and um, it's, it's been quite a journey. Um, I joined the built environment industry um, about five and a half years ago. Um, I started in planning communications. I still do planning communications, just kind of different areas of infrastructure and housing um, with my kind of main remit being um, energy. So kind of National Grid is, is probably one of my biggest clients that I work on with their community relations. I also do quite large housing developments such as um, Lend-Lease as well. And when I started, I very quickly noticed that in the project teams that I was working in, my colleagues weren't very diverse. So kind of going to events was, was a disappointing experience. You know, when you're young, you're really encouraged to kind of go to networking events. Um, and I would turn up um, and, you know, it was, it was really difficult to kind of break into, you know, the kind of networking circles, um, you know, dare I say, very stereotypically, a lot of the property industry do enjoy drinking. They do enjoy skiing. And I, I, I do drink, I, I, I don't drink loads, um, but I've, I've never been skiing before. My, my family holidays growing up consisted of going to, you know, India, for example, which, which doesn't make me boring, just makes me different. But it, but it did mean that I just didn't really have much to kind of talk about, and, you know, kind of share my experiences um, with, these, with these other attendees. And then shockingly, sometimes the panels themselves weren't very diverse. I once went to an event, and this was only four years ago, where the entire panel of five people were all male, white male. And I just thought, this is this is shocking. At least at least have a woman on there. Because, you know, it, we'd, we'd progressed enough by that point that, that we should have had at least, you know, gender gender balance on, um, on panel events. So then it got to a point where one of my former directors asked me, why don't you enjoy networking events? And I said, they just don't speak to me. I just can't relate, relate to them. I can't go to them and just feel comfortable. So that's when I set up BAME in property. And the idea was it would be a networking event where you know BAME and non-BAME professionals could come together network in a really safe comfortable forum you know build their connections I always say that your network is your net worth and you know it was really an opportunity for people to start meeting you know individuals in the industry that they wouldn't normally meet and so over the last um, you know few years I've um, held events with the likes of Knight Frank to Christian Wakefield, Lansac, KNL Gates, um, Savills, 
it's kind of really kind of been around the you know real estate industry and it's been great it's, it's been really nice to kind of get the word out there about you know the importance of BAME, um, BAME diversity in the industry but also you know kind of get this conversation going about you know why is there such a lack of ethnic diversity in the industry why don't ethnic professionals remain in the industry because you could argue that we often see a fair bit of diversity at the uh, kind of graduate and entry levels which is probably fair to say but then it starts to fall at the uh, middle management level and you've really got to question why why is it that we just don't see people beyond a certain level you know there's a number of reasons why there's a lack of visibility there's that you know kind of old boys network where who, you know where are you hiring from who are you hiring you know are you actually you know basing this on merit or are you just uh, you know hiring someone because they are mate and i think you know we, we we really need to have this conversation about why aren't being people progressing but i think there's that kind of hidden conversation but also this kind of unspoken conversation about racism there is so much racism in the industry we don't talk about it and you know another one of the reasons why i set up being property was because i got called an indian princess and you know there that there might be a number of connotations attached to that there might be a bit of a context attached to that in fact ironically the uh, conversation that I had with the person was, I'm going backpacking around Zimbabwe and South Africa on my safaris. And he, he came back to me and said, well, you don't look like someone who would go backpacking. And I said, you just don't know me. And, you know, it was it was really shocking to have been called an Indian princess. But it just goes to show that these these are the sort of comments which are very much, you know, alive in this in this industry and we just don't talk about it so that's why i started being property this year has been different obviously with the pandemic i've not had any physical events they've been very much virtual events so i guess at the start of the um lockdown i did um several um virtual events uh, more recently i've been doing uh, lunch and learns uh, which have been quite popular so i've done lunch and learns with the likes of homes england to granger to wells fargo uh, yesterday I did my first university lecture which was a really exciting um, experience I really enjoyed that it's been it's been quite different and we're I suppose providing more strategic advice um, to the industry which I think is is a really important role for the, um, for the organization so that's kind of where I am. Uh, one of my friends Christopher Katkowski described the finest witness he'd ever called uh, the one that he asked one question and he just gave all the answers that he needed without having to intervene uh, asking you questions for areas like that is wonderful. So I was about to ask you what sort of barriers uh, you think are encountered, but I think you've told me that. So can I just focus on a, on a slightly different issue, which is outcomes. Um, I, I'm struck and have been struck in some of the, the experiences that I've had, how insensitive the planning system can be in terms of outcomes. And reading about you and your organisation, I've been a number of rabbit holes. And I know this is something you're passionate about. So how do resolve the issues where there is insensitivity the insensitivity there is lack of knowledge about what particular communities want and what things may be inappropriate for communities how, how do we go about raising awareness as to what we should be planning for I think first and foremost we need to really start representing the communities that we are working in so I think if you look up and down the country there are kind of pockets of you know huge huge diversity in um, in Birmingham for example you've got a huge Pakistani population Tower Hamlets you've got Bangladeshis Harrows you've got you know huge Gujarati population and these communities are very unique housing and kind of living experiences so for example um, among South Asian communities um, you know nearly kind of 80% of families are living in intergenerational housing you know which is where they probably have their grandparents living with them maybe a cousin or two and I think most housing these days is just not really geared for multi-generational housing um, and I think if you, if you look at the new developments you know they're very much 
one large room with a with a kitchen on one end and then a kind of settee on the other and to be honest that's just not really desirable um, and it's just not really big enough for multi-generational living and so I think just kind of not understanding that means that housing isn't allocated um, properly and we you know we kind of talked about retirement living before um, and I can see this, you know, um, this, this, this issue of, you know, sometimes we, we have local plans where there's certain, you know, number of um, homes allocated. And I think, you know, sometimes just isn't the right type of housing allocated for some demographics. So retirement living is, is something which we absolutely need in this country. We've got an aging population, but some communities just don't require retirement living in the same capacity so if you take a lovely you know retirement living complex like a like a McCarthy and Stone you've got your retirement living and you've got your assisted living um they are really nice homes to live in unfortunately they don't necessarily suit some cultures and communities so you've got a kitchen where they're you know where they're preparing meals for example uh, but there if, if there isn't a separate vegetarian or halal kitchen for example there's you know firstly that's that's a huge barrier there aren't any staff that speak the same languages that's a huge barrier if the if the development itself is not located near amenities that you actually want or need so one of McCarthy and Stone's huge selling points is you know you've got shops and services you've got a church down the road but what if you're Muslim and you need a mosque or what if you're Hindu and you want to go to your local temple and if it isn't there then it's just not desirable so I think we've not really thought about in our local plans how to allocate housing accordingly to different demographics and I think there is a huge hole there and I think we need to understand as as professionals you know what do we actually need to think about when we are developing local plans when we're developing housing what what do different communities actually want and need and sometimes can be just as simple as you know having like a good four sized you know four four bedroom home which is actually big enough to suit multi-generational living which sometimes just isn't there yeah i i i won't go back on the recording stones i'm sure that my, my my colleagues there will be saying well yeah we do we are attuned to that but the point is we need to be more attuned to that we all as an industry we need to be more attuned to that your, your comments have a real resonance. One of my career moments was sitting in the Blackburn local plan as a junior barrister about five or six years, years call and hearing a community leader explain why it was that affordable housing didn't mean small housing in Blackburn. It meant big houses to accommodate intergenerational people and that uh, families. And that was just misunderstood uh, by a number of people in the room. Um, so how do we move from a position where the industry is very much dominated by uh, people who are male and pale to one which does speak to the Bain community and which does have more involvement from the Bain community in terms of preparation of plans, comments on, on applications. How do we move to that? I think we need to start um, looking at community engagement and, and planning more as interdisciplinary as opposed to kind of separate areas. I think often we don't go into communities and really engage with them properly. And I think we don't really know how to. Obviously, this is my profession, so I'm, I'm really going to sell it um, this this evening. But I think it's, it, it is really important. I don't think we kind of talk about it or, you know, um, you know, blow its trumpet enough. And I would say that if you're going into a really diverse community where it's with a specific ethnic group, utilize the community leaders, speak to faith leaders, really engage with them because they're the ones who really know their area the best. You know, they will be able to break down language barriers. There's kind of cultural barriers which they'll be able to break down. And I think it's really important that you kind of use their knowledge of the local area. So you shouldn't always assume that that, that you know best because you you probably don't and I, I probably don't as a, as a community engagement consultant. Local people know their local area the best. So if you're not actually asking them 
what they want and actually kind of using them to you know help you with your plans and their and their development then you're not really utilizing them in the right way so I think that's really important I would also say co-design is really important so actually including them from the very beginning don't go and present your ideas let them give you their ideas because they will tell you what they actually need in the local area sometimes we assume and we think this is what they want but actually do you even know the area so I think that that's really more like listening is really important and that's why we have two ears and one mouth because we we should be listening to what people have to say um and I would also say that you know how how are we actually kind of um you know targeting people to ensure that they kind of stay in this in this industry so I think mentioned earlier you know we've got so much diversity at the uh, kind of graduate entry level you know do we actually um are we doing enough to um kind of support people with their progression and their development so I also said earlier that your network is your net worth so if you don't have that kind of network around you to support you with your progression you know are we actually recognizing that some people from ethnic minority backgrounds might actually need more support you know and I think um, that that is something that we all need to you know recognize as individuals that we might have some privilege and if you know once once you know that and once you can acknowledge that then you can start supporting people in a more tailored way so giving them more training sessions supporting them with public speaking for example doing all these things to actually help them progress and go beyond a certain level and to ensure that there is that visibility beyond middle management and then my final point would be if we really want to get people into the industry you know, we need to start targeting them probably at a much younger age. And I would say, and I can probably say this growing up as a kind of, you know, um, Indian, British, British Indian, you know, um, woman, you know, I was never told about planning careers or property or, or anything, to be honest. In fact, I was told, why don't you become a pharmacist? Or why don't you become a doctor or an accountant? Because every second cousin I have is one of those. And I just said, no, you know, I, against all odds, um, I went to, you know, read politics at university, which my parents didn't like. Um, I started working in politics, which my parents didn't like. And then I set up Bain Property and now I do all of this stuff. And and they're, they're completely fine about it, but it took a long time for me to get to the stage. And I think there is clearly a bit of stigma attached to doing something out of the norm. So when you're talking to, you know, young people, you've got to really target them when they're 14 to 16 before they've chosen their subjects, you know, target their parents as well. Start actually talking about the more lucrative side of property and planning. You can make just as much money working in property and real estate as you can in any other profession like an accountancy, you know, and I think that's what we need to start doing. But I also think we need to start changing the narrative around what we're talking about when we when we talk about property and planning. Planning is more than bricks and mortar. It's about, you know, really shaping and developing communities. And we don't actually talk about it like that. It's, it's to do with climate change. It's to do with social justice. And, you know, young people are really socially minded. You have to really speak to them and really engage with them in that way. And that is how you're going to capture their hearts and minds. So it's about, you know, changing the narrative from different angles, really getting them to think more critically about it as well. So that's how, you know, we need to start changing it um you know being a being a pharmacist isn't isn't the be all end all it's a great profession but I would say you know being in this industry you can really kind of shape and transform someone's community and what is better than that um hugely important and particularly relevant to our profession our vibes profession which is woefully underrepresented in that regard um so I'm going to throw it over to the rest of the panel Chris do you have a question for Priya I do, I do. Uh, first of all, Priya, uh, I think this is such an important conversation. I don't think any of us doubt that. Um, we are doing things. Our chambers support specifically black students because of their underrepresentation in the legal profession. Uh, and I support some individual students in that, but it's not enough. And that's the law. If we turn to where we work, which is in planning, property, surveyors, landscape architects, ecologists, 
it is only too apparent how massively underrepresented the, the ethnic minorities are. And I just wondered whether what, what you think we should do about that, what the profession should do about that. Should we be going out and speaking to, to children in schools, um, in, in areas where there's significant ethnic minorities and encouraging them to think about professions that they probably haven't thought about um, because they don't know anybody who's an ecologist. Um, and, and is there a role for that, for the professions to just get out there and speak to the children and, and convince their parents as well, as you have said, uh, about rewarding careers, both in terms of enjoyment, but also, you know, we, we all think about the financial aspect as well. Is, is that part of it? Absolutely. We should we should all be doing that. I think, you know, if you if you've got the ability and you've got the capacity to do that, we should absolutely be going into, you know, schools and in, in, in inner cities which are home to, you know, huge ethnic minority populations. Because we tend to, as 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 companies, you know, go to universities that we've always had connections with. And you know, that kind of results in the same type of person entering our industry, you know, the classic reading real estate or not human trend actually. That's fine, but we actually need to start recruiting from outside of those, you know, usual universities, not to say that they won't get recruited from, but also start thinking more outside of, you know, just property and planning degrees. So, you know, why do we have to just study kind of surveying at university or law or whatever? We can actually do a whole host of things which can be applied to the built environment. The built environment is absolutely everything and anything. So we, we, we should be able to do anything and then come into this, into this industry. So I think, again, you know, we need to not talk about it as you can be a surveyor, but what is it that you're actually achieving out of this by going into that profession? So I think, again, you know, changing the narrative is really key. But if you can go into a school, go into a school, absolutely. You know, influence the next generation. It, it is in your power, yeah. 100%. Mary, do you have a question for Priya? I most certainly do. Can I can I say first of all, Priya, it's, it's delightful to have you uh, here. And secondly, I've already uh, made the point on this show before that actually no one, no one should attend and take part in a panel which is comprised solely of men. And I, I would really be quite upset to think that any of our regular viewers uh, haven't taken that message on board. So I absolutely echo what you say. And it seems to me that the more we look after the giant, the gender issue, the more we might help on the diversity issue, broader diversity issue at the same time. Um, my, my sort of thought really was, are, the, are our professional bodies doing enough? Should our professional bodies be encouraging us more as organizations to assess the ethnicity of our staff, to consider agile working policies and to consider them with a view to uh, not only accommodating people of different gender, but also people of different ethnicity. Should we be as, as employers and uh, partners in firms as I am, looking at, uh, at our organization and asking ourselves um, if our approach to um, recruitment is right, should we be using blind C uh, CVs, for example? Absolutely. Lots of, lots of lots of questions, really. There was, Sorry. There was there. I mean, absolutely. There's a huge role for trade bodies to play in this. You know, they are, you know, hugely influential in the industry and in our profession. They should be encouraging all of their all of their members who are, you know, major, major companies in the industry to put diversity and inclusion at the heart of their company strategy. And that that's how I view it. So, you know, if I if I think about, you know, diversity and inclusion, I like to view it as a as a tree. You know, you've got a really, really strong acacia tree, for example, which is very prominent in the in the Serengeti. 
you've got, you know, really, really strong tree with, with really strong roots. DNI should be in the roots because when you've got it in the roots, then the rest of the tree grows really, really strong. And each branch is, you know, different areas such as uh, culture, you know, this is organizational culture to paid, flexible working, to training and development. Everything is very much embedded in, you know, DNI. And I think that is how we should be viewing it. So many companies view DNI as an add-on. And I think that is just completely the wrong way to view it. They just see it as something which, you know, we should be doing because other companies are doing it. But actually when you've got it really at the heart of your company, you get more creativity, you get more innovation, you know, ultimately you can really kind of outperform your competitors. You know, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's an absolute no brainer. We, we really need to be putting it at the heart of our companies and really questioning why do certain people need more flexible working than others? So by, by, by having an organizational culture where you are celebrating festivals and events, for example, for example, you know, we've got Ramadan every year for a month, you know, people might need more flexible working during that time. If you've got an open conversation about Ramadan, you know, it's happening. Someone comes to you and says, I'd like to have more flexible working during this month because I'm fasting, you know, I'm, I'm going to be praying multiple times a day. Um, can I have more flexible working? They've got the confidence to ask for that. It's very much all intertwined together. Or flexible working um, and um, pay, for example, you know, just recognizing that the pay that you take home is not simply for you. If you're an ethnic minority, for example, you might be sending home back to a different country to, you know, other family members. And I think, you know, being able to have those open conversations are really important. So I think first and foremost, you know, trade bodies in the industry should be encouraging all companies to have DNI policies. And if they don't, it should be part of their kind of um, application. If you want to be a member of this trade body, you have to meet certain requirements. And if DNI is not in there, then you've not really met the supplier diversity. So I think that is really, really important. Secondly, as kind of partners and directors, again, you should be thinking about DNI within your remit and your role as well, because it's really important for future innovation, can really help your company grow and you know perform better. So if you're not thinking about it, then you're really kind of meeting your own role as well. So that that for me is, is absolutely crucial. We should all be thinking about it. And finally, blind CVs. I'm not I'm not really sure about blind CVs because if I was told to kind of hide my name, you know, Priya, Priya Shah, you know, I'm really proud of my name. It's it's got so much heritage and a kind of identity to it. You know, that that's my name. No one's gonna see it. And that for me is 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 really disappointing because why should I you know kind of help them remove their unconscious bias? just so that I can get a job because if I got into the company and they still had that unconscious bias when they when they got to know me and my name have I really solved the problem let's tackle it from the other end you know let's tackle culture let's tackle unconscious bias and actually teach someone to accept someone because of their name not I should remove my name because you've got unconscious bias. And that, that's how I view blind CVs. But I also accept that it takes a long time to remove biases. We all have biases and that we have to start somewhere. And if for some companies blind CVs tend to be working, then fine. But just kind of bear in mind that you need to be tackling these issues and the, and the recruitment issue as a whole from different angles. And I would say that tackling unconscious bias is, is really a priority to kind of change that culture and to you know, start having conversations about who you're hiring. I love that last answer, Priya. Thank you for that. Charlie, do you have a question for Priya? Um, yeah, thanks, Floyd. This is one of the moments where, you know, it's a shame we can we only do this show for about an hour. I mean, obviously, people have got their, their work and their families, so that's kind of a necessary constraint. But I wish we could carry on this discussion for another hour, to be quite honest, because um, there's so much I'd like to talk and hear talk with you and hear from you about but um my question is about the planning inspector and eth maximizing ethnic diversity there um I, I, it, this may very well overlap with some of what you said already but i think it's really important because um you know if we all asked ourselves when was the last time 
you appeared in front of a BAME inspector, I suspect there'd be a long pause for many people. And that's not a criticism, it's a recognition that they've had, they've faced the same um, challenges that the industry has faced. Um, and, and I know from having spoken to senior management this week at, at PINS, uh, that they are fundamentally committed uh, to increasing and maximising diversity within the spectra, and they they are doing and planning some really important things in that respect, and they they're completely committed to that. What I wanted to know, and what I suspect they would be really interested to hear from you, Priya, is what do you think? What 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 do you recommend can be done to most effectively maximise ethnic diversity within the planning spectra quickly? Quickly, well, I mean, firstly, you know, it's, it's kind of going back to some of the points that we've that we've already been discussing. It's kind of going into schools and actually telling people about the array of careers that you can do in property and planning. You can be a planner to an architect to you know planning lawyer to a planning inspector, you know. And I think that that's kind of how we need to present it. I didn't even know what a planning inspector was until a few years ago. So I think that just kind of goes to show how lack of awareness and knowledge can really prevent people from entering an industry. So firstly, that is really important. We need to start making it sound a little bit more sexy. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> planning inspector. Let's let's actually start having a bit more of a discussion about what it actually is. It doesn't sound that exciting, dare I say. And I think, you know, by just kind of making it sound a little bit more interesting, you might have more people talking about it, kind of going into the industry. I think visibility is just so important. And I think the role of a planning inspector is just so important. They're the ones who are kind of inspecting, you know, huge applications to local plans. And going back to a point earlier where we talked about, you know, the importance of housing allocation and getting the kind of housing sizes right in, in um, allocation of different demographics and so on. It's so important if you have got an Asian, um, you know, um, planning inspector there who can actually say, actually, hang on, this is not the right allocation. That is really, really, you know, useful insight to have, which is cultural awareness. That's so important. So I think being able to actually demonstrate why it's so important will be key to actually recruiting more planning inspectors from more diverse backgrounds. But I still say the other points are also really important as well. Thank you. I love the subtext that the question really is, how do we make the planning inspector sexy? I think that's a great <laughs> Well, Judge, Judge Vinder would approve, given that he called planning sexy two weeks ago, which everybody has adopted as their new hashtag sexy planning. The worry was that he sounded, he was making it sound like he was so amazed that it could even be considered that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Priya, I wanted to ask you, I should just say, you should note my name, White. I'm a White because my Jewish family wanted to hide their background back in the 1890s when they arrived. You couldn't have a clearly Eastern European name, or you could, but it made life a lot more difficult. So I'm a white because it obviously masked our heritage, and that's why I'm a white. So I thought that was of interest. Secondly, I wanted to ask you, what, what do you see? Where's, where's the journey? Where do you want to go to with Bayman Property? What are your, your long-term aims and visions? So at the moment, we are obviously providing, you know, st strategic advice to different companies across the industry. I think, you know, this whole kind of speaking to university students is, is really key for me because I think just kind of opening their eyes to the industry and ethnic diversity is really important. Getting them to think more holistically about the issue is, is, is also really key. So I think doing more of this kind of work 
is really important. I think I'll still hold some events, but I think I'm kind of moving away from the, I guess, the kind of core origin of fame property, which was networking events, to starting to, you know, offer advice to companies, um, support, help them with their DNI strategies, doing more and more kind of lunch and learns, things like that. And I, I would love to do a piece of research in the future. I'm not sure when, um, if I can find the time, but you know, kind of really looking at the industry as as a whole and kind of un, unpicking it from the ethnic diversity perspective. So that you know, those are just some of the kind of I guess short to medium goals, I haven't thought about it, you know, in the kind of five year, 10 year plan, but I think at the moment things are going really well. It's it's growing rapidly, it, it always has been. Um, with, with kind of Christmas coming up soon, I always take a kind of three week break from Bayman property and just life in general, which is, which is you know, very, very needed. Um, and then I'll be back in the new year kind of doing more Bayman property work. So do, do stay tuned, do kind of follow all of my um, social oh. channels on Bayman property, because I would say that one of the, biggest successes of own property has been its social media presence um i guess that that does partially come from me being a comms consultant um which which absolutely helps in its in its growth and development but yeah i think do do follow us on our social channels for the for the best content out there but priya can i just say it's it's a wonderful thing to be involved in this particular project that we're all in, involved in mm. but the absolute highlight is to meet inspirational people such as yourself it's humbling and wonderful. thank you very much for coming on Thank John. you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, have, we, have we done praise of the week yet? I'm not sure where we are now. But, uh, yeah, yes, it was, we praise Swedish internet. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And nudge of the week. Who's doing nudge of the week? Chris. <laughs> <laughs> me. I've had a whole week of having to come off mute. Okay, I think nudge of the week really should go to all of us and all of our professions, because if there's only 1.4% um, Bain a representation in the property sector, then something has gone wrong. It's mm. 2020, how could we have got to this position without noticing it? I spoke to my good friend, Satnam Chung, uh, a member of my chambers yesterday, and to my absolute shame, it was the first time I really thought about this. She said, I go up and down the country. I've known Satnam for 20 years, up and down the country. I've never called a witness from an ethnic minority background, never been in front of an inspector from an ethnic minority. Now, that was his experience. Mine's slightly different. Yours may be slightly different. But um, for that to even happen and for there to be such a labor that we need to do a lot more and we need to do a lot more quickly. So... It's nudge of the week to all of us and all of our professions and everybody watching this. Let's do more. Let's get involved. Let's help Priya with her organization. And, and in fairness, I think you said yesterday, didn't you, Priya, that the Landscape Institute has approached you to try and address this issue and would encourage all the other professions that we work with, the fabulous professions we work with, to do the same and follow what the Landscape Institute is doing. Well said. Just, well said. Well said. Completely agree with that. I know. I know the planning inspector are very keen to work with you too, um, uh, Priya, and, and good on them for doing so. Um, Priya, thank you so much indeed for joining us. It's been um, uh, you know, a really profound, important, and enjoyable episode, and, and informative too. I hope um, you'll continue to stay in touch with us, um, and um, we hope we'll get you back on the show. Um, 
on a future episode. We do like returning guests. Um, now, next week, uh, we've got Andy Street, the mayor of the West Midlands, former managing director of John Lewis. Hopefully by then my computer will start turning itself off and on again. At least it's working now. Uh, I think it's one of those Windows updates. Um, so we're looking forward to, to welcoming Andy uh, next week to talk about the Birmingham Renaissance, the West Midlands Renaissance, in fact, and how the planning uh, system can help facilitate that. Um, and um, in the meantime, please uh, don't forget to consider your charity donation, whether it's to the NHS or to Shelter or to Charge Your Choice. Have a great weekend when it arrives and, um, and see you next week. Thank goodness, thank goodness for mobile internet. <laughs> Just about made it back. Thanks for having me. Bye. Cheerio. Goodbye. Have a nice weekend. Thanks again, Priya. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>